Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Late March of last year, uh, I researched and wrote our episode on the eradication of render pests. Because in that moment, it just felt really weird to me to work on episodes that were not about the pandemic somehow. Because that was dominating everything (laughs) in our lives. But at the same time, I wanted to work on something that felt kind of optimistic because the pandemic was dominating our lives. Uh, So now it's almost a year and a half later. Here in the U.S., we had a pretty hopeful springtime regarding the progress of the pandemic. I know that was not the case in the whole world, but we had what was looking like improved situations. Uh, That obviously has taken a turn once again for the worst, or at least the worst, Maybe not the worst of ever, but definitely worse. Uh, I wanted to kind of return to the idea of wiping a disease off the face of the earth. So Rinderpest and smallpox are the only two diseases that have been eradicated through human activity. Neither one of them is technically extinct because there are some samples of both viruses that still exist in labs. They're no longer circulating out in the wild, though. And we've talked about smallpox a bit on the show before. We had our episode on Edward Jenner and the smallpox vaccine and how the vaccine was developed and then Jenner's efforts to try to make it more widely available. More recently, we did the episode on the Royal Philanthropic Vaccine Expedition, and that was all about Spain's efforts to transport the smallpox vaccine to the Americas, which required a chain of living human hosts. We mentioned pretty briefly, the eradication of smallpox in both of those episodes, but we have not gone into detail about how that happened. That's what we're going to talk about today. And when Tracy mentioned it to me, I said, we've covered that. No, it just keeps (laughs) coming up. It just keeps coming up. We've said in like a sentence how it was done, but it's a more than a sentence worth of explanation. Yeah. Yeah, it's just it's uh it's been just peppered in enough that my brain was like, yeah, that well, that was an episode, right? Nope. <laughs> nope. So smallpox is a viral disease that has existed for millennia. When it was circulating in the wild, it spread from person to person through the air, usually through face-to-face contact, and it can also be spread through contact with contaminated objects and surfaces. People who contracted smallpox typically developed a high fever and body aches, and that was followed by a distinctive rash. There are two different strains of the variola virus that were causing smallpox, variola major and variola minor. As that name suggests, variola major caused more serious illnesses. As many as a third of people who were infected with variola major died. As many as 90% of babies died. It was also particularly lethal any time it was introduced somewhere that it hadn't existed before, such as when Europeans started arriving in the Americas. And in those cases, smallpox usually killed about half the people who contracted it. Among the people who survived the disease, smallpox could also be both disabling and disfiguring. There was and is no cure for smallpox, so even as science and medicine progressed, it continued to be deadly. But it also had some traits that made it a good candidate for a worldwide eradication campaign. 
Smallpox was easy to recognize and diagnose, unlike, say, the flu, which can resemble a lot of other respiratory infections. Smallpox passed directly from person to person and only infected humans, so there were no hidden reservoirs of the virus that could potentially start a new outbreak. That's different from something like yellow fever, which also infects other primates and is transmitted by mosquitoes. Another plus, once a person had recovered from smallpox, they were immune for life. For a number of reasons, smallpox outbreaks also tended to develop relatively slowly. Once people were contagious, they were usually also too sick to really leave home. So outbreaks tended to cluster around members of the same household and their immediate neighborhood. And then once an outbreak was identified, swift action could keep it from spreading very far. And most importantly, there was a way to disrupt transmission of the disease, in this case, a vaccine. In terms of the smallpox vaccine, at first, people prevented smallpox using a technique called variolation that involved intentionally introducing material from one person's smallpox sore or scab into another person. Practitioners in Asia were doing this as early as the 11th century, and the technique spread from there. Then, in the late 18th century, people started to make a connection between smallpox and another much milder disease that was called cowpox. The smallpox and cowpox viruses are both in the genus Orthopoxvirus, and people who had contracted cowpox seemed immune to smallpox. Several people, including Edward Jenner, tried deliberately exposing people to cowpox as a way to prevent smallpox. Jenner called this vaccination after the Latin word for cow. So both variolation and vaccination could prevent smallpox. But since variolation could also cause full-blown smallpox, vaccination was a lot safer. At the same time, though, vaccination in its earliest forms carried some of the same risks that variolation did, including the potential for transmitting other illnesses like syphilis and hepatitis from person to person during these person-to-person vaccination chains. Sometime in the 19th century, people shifted from using cowpox to using vaccinia virus, which is another orthopox virus, to make smallpox vaccine. The origins of the vaccinia virus are unclear. It is possible that it's actually some kind of hybrid of cowpox and smallpox, or that it developed over time as cowpox virus was passed through multiple hosts in the process of making vaccines. Eventually, vaccinia virus replaced cowpox virus for vaccination purposes, just as vaccination with cowpox had previously replaced variolation with smallpox itself. At first, vaccines made with vaccinia virus were grown in the skin of live animals like calves, sheep, and rabbits. Eventually, that shifted to growing the virus in tissue cultures or in chicken eggs. These methods replaced those arm-to-arm vaccination chains that we talked about in our episode on the Royal Philanthropic Vaccine Expedition. Countries actually started to outlaw arm-to-arm vaccinations in the late 19th century. Many of the vaccinia strains used to make vaccines were attenuated or weakened by repeatedly passing them through a non-human host. Things like chick embryo cells, eggs, or mice. This process resulted in a virus that produced an immune response when a person was vaccinated with it, but couldn't reproduce in that person's body and make them sick. So while vaccination with cowpox virus was safer than variolation with smallpox virus, 
vaccination with an attenuated version of vaccinia virus was also safer than vaccination with live, unattenuated cowpox. Yeah, there were still potentials for various complications, but this was an improvement overall. It really didn't take long after the development of vaccines for people to wonder whether vaccines could be used to eliminate smallpox entirely. But early attempts to do this faced a lot of obstacles. As we talked about in our episode on the Royal Philanthropic Vaccine Expedition, early versions of smallpox vaccine lost their potency really quickly, especially in hot weather. And that continued to be true after Vaccinia replaced cowpox as the preferred virus for smallpox vaccines. But then in the 1940s, people started working on dehydrated and freeze-dried versions of the vaccine. The Vaccine Institute in Paris produced a freeze-dried, vacuum-packed vaccine that had a longer shelf life. In the 1950s, Leslie Harold Collier at the Lister Institute studied the preservation methods that were in use and how effective they were, and he developed a process that didn't require refrigeration, even in tropical temperatures. Once the vaccine was reconstituted, it still had a short shelf life, but until that point, it could survive in the field for months. It also protected people from smallpox infection for at least 10 years and offered protection against dying of smallpox for some time after that. Collier's method eventually became the World Health Organization standard for vaccine used for the eradication campaign. Smallpox was eliminated in North America in 1952 and in Europe in 1953, and that was done primarily through mass vaccination campaigns, especially ones that were done in response to outbreaks. And this success came in spite of increasing resistance to vaccines and to compulsory vaccine programs. In the United States, this resistance led to a Supreme Court case in 1905. The city of Cambridge, Massachusetts, had been trying to stop a smallpox outbreak and had ordered all adults to be vaccinated or to pay a $5 fine. Henning Jacobson refused to be vaccinated, and then after being fined, he took the matter to court. In the words of the court's decision, quote, the liberty secured by the Constitution of the United States does not import an absolute right in each person to be at all times and in all circumstances wholly freed from restraint, nor is it an element in such liberty that one person or a minority of persons residing in any community and enjoying the benefits of local government should have power to dominate the majority when supported in their action by the authority of the state. It is within the police power of a state to enact a compulsory vaccination law, and it is for the legislature and not for the courts to determine in the first instance whether vaccination is or is not the best mode for the prevention of smallpox and the protection of the public health. We'll get some more on the campaign to eradicate smallpox in the rest of the world after a sponsor break. The World Health Organization's decision-making body is called the World Health Assembly. And in 1953, the WHA didn't consider smallpox to be a candidate for global eradication. It just wasn't a priority. But five years later, a delegate to the WHA proposed a 10-year eradication plan. That delegate was Professor Viktor Zhdanov, who was Deputy Health Minister of the Soviet Union. And this proposal included vaccine donations that would be provided by the USSR. 
But even with the promise of donated vaccines, this proposal still didn't pass. At the time, the World Health Organization was working on an anti-malaria program, and that was really just drawing most of the focus. In 1959, the Soviet Union's proposal was reintroduced, and this time it was passed as a voluntary global vaccine campaign. Countries where smallpox was endemic, that is, freely circulating, were asked to institute mass vaccine programs with a goal of vaccinating 80% of their populations. And the countries where it wasn't, which were generally richer, were asked to contribute funding or vaccines toward the effort. At that point, smallpox was being reported in 63 countries, and together, those countries reported 77,555 cases of the disease. But it became obvious really fast that that number was way, way too low. For one thing, those 63 countries only included the ones that were members of the World Health Organization. And some countries where smallpox was endemic were not members at that point, and that included China, which had a population of more than 660 million people. But even in those 63 countries, reporting was all over the place. In countries without a lot of public health infrastructure, Smallpox cases weren't really being tracked, but even in places where that wasn't the case, sometimes the only smallpox infections being reported were the ones that ended up in hospitals. In reality, the countries where smallpox was still endemic in 1959 were home to more than half the world's population, and that total number of annual cases was probably more like 50 million, not 77,000. This voluntary program was focused on national vaccine campaigns. And at least in theory, each nation's campaign would be tailored for its own culture, needs, resources, and infrastructure. But that also meant there was really no central strategy at work. The World Health Organization's role was mostly just making sure that there was enough vaccine available and providing assistance if nations asked for it. It wasn't really coordinating efforts or doing a lot of tracking and monitoring. And because underreporting of cases continued to be a huge problem, it was almost impossible to tell whether these national programs were even working. That made it much harder to secure funding or to rally support from nations that had already eradicated smallpox within their own borders. And for the most part, these early national campaigns were not working, at least not very well. In many places, success was measured by how many vaccines were administered. Sometimes this led vaccinators to go after the easiest targets first, like vaccinating all the students at a school. But that meant that children in more outlying areas who were not attending school were not being vaccinated. Since there often weren't clear records, it wasn't unheard of for vaccinators to go back to the same school and vaccinate children again, even though a successful smallpox vaccine typically left a recognizable scar. Because of issues like this, at one point, India was reporting a vaccination rate of 140% because so many people were being vaccinated more than once. Things moved pretty slowly with all this for about five years. But then in 1964, Dr. Karel Rashka of Czechoslovakia, who was a huge advocate of smallpox eradication, became director of the Division of Communicable Diseases at the World Health Organization. In 1965, the World Health Organization established a dedicated smallpox eradication unit. 
And that same year, President Lyndon Johnson announced that the United States would start supporting the Global Smallpox Eradication Program. Soon, the U.S. was supporting the work of the Pan American Health Organization in South America and also funding major vaccine efforts in Western and Central Africa. These years also saw improvements in how smallpox vaccines were administered. Most vaccines that people receive today are administered as shots. They go into the muscle or the subcutaneous skin layer using a needle. But smallpox vaccine goes into the skin's superficial layers. By the mid-1960s, there were a few different methods for doing this. One was to scratch a person's skin with a needle or lancet, and another was to repeatedly press the tip of the needle into a person's skin. Neither of these methods was very precise. Depending on how skilled the vaccinator was, they might press the needle too far into the skin or not far enough. The amount of vaccine on the needle usually depended on things like how deeply it had been inserted into the vaccine vial. Excess vaccine was often left behind on a person's skin and left to either dry there or be wiped away. It was kind of wasteful. It's so fascinating to me to think about this when uh, I think most of the vaccines I've received are like those pre-measured very carefully, like you open the the um, dose and that's it. Yeah. So the margin for error of it is a little bit mind-boggling. Yeah. And there are for sure vaccines that are not administered with shots at this point, but the shots, at least here in the U.S., are the majority of them. The standard, Yeah. Jet injector devices were made to try to address some of this and to make vaccinating more efficient. In theory, these could vaccinate 1,000 people an hour. But in practice, they were limited. Some required electricity to work, and others were operated with a foot pedal. That was clunky. So these were only really practical in places where you could bring huge groups of people to one location to be vaccinated. Plus, these devices were expensive, and they were hard to clean, and they were prone to breaking down. But then, Dr. Benjamin A. Rubin developed the bifurcated needle, which was patented in July of 1965. This was a simple needle, and when it was inserted into a vaccine vial, it picked up one measured dose of liquid in between the two prongs. The prongs themselves were designed to keep the needle at the correct angle and depth with a person's skin, and the two-pronged structure meant that it needed fewer presses into the skin to administer each vaccine. This made everything way more efficient. One vial of vaccine could be used to vaccinate four times as many people, and people could be trained to administer the vaccine with the bifurcated needle in about 15 minutes, even if they had no previous medical experience. Plus, the bifurcated needles were cheap to produce. Although they were originally intended to be disposable, at the World Health Organization's request, they were made from a steel alloy that could hold up to boiling or flaming. They could be sterilized and reused over and over before they started to dull. Boilable containers were designed so that vaccinators could drop used needles into the container as they went and boil the whole thing at the end of a shift. Also... It was standard practice to clean a person's arm with pads that were soaked in alcohol or soap before giving them the vaccine. I know every time I've gotten a shot, (laughs) there's been a little alcohol wipe down on the injection site. But studies had suggested that this wasn't actually removing bacteria or other contaminants. It was just sort of moving things around. 
Studies confirmed that the number of complications and secondary infections after smallpox vaccination was the same, regardless of whether the vaccine site was wiped down beforehand or not. So most vaccination programs, especially in like more impoverished areas, dropped this step. And together, all of this brought the cost for smallpox vaccination down to about 10 cents a person. By 1966, smallpox was endemic in 31 countries. That was down from the 63 or more reported back in 1959. The number of estimated worldwide cases had dropped from about 50 million to somewhere between 10 and 15 million, although the officially reported tally was still much lower. Somewhere between 1.5 and 2 million people were still dying of smallpox per year. This was better obviously, but it was also clear that a voluntary vaccination program wasn't going to be enough to eradicate smallpox. So the World Health Assembly backed a proposal for an intensified smallpox eradication program, which would start on January 1st, 1967. Its goal was to eradicate smallpox worldwide within 10 years, with the last naturally occurring case being found and isolated by December 31st, 1976. The intensified program was given an initial budget of $2.5 million, and this was more money than before. But those 31 countries where smallpox was still endemic also had neighbors that needed to be protected from introduced cases. So this only worked out to about $50,000 per country. Donald A. Henderson, who was chief of the Centers for Disease Control Smallpox Eradication Program, was made chief medical officer of the Intensified Eradication Program. And in his account, this 10-year goal was pretty arbitrary. It had been inspired by John F. Kennedy's declaration that the U.S. could land a man on the moon within 10 years. He also described the World Health Organization as pessimistic about the chances of success. WHO Director General Dr. Marcolina Candau was from Brazil and thought smallpox eradication would be impossible just in the Amazon basin, much less anywhere else. According to Henderson, the World Health Organization wanted an American to head the program so that if it failed, the U.S. would shoulder some of the blame, rather than all of it falling on the WHO. I read a write-up that Henderson wrote briefly about this, uh, this campaign, And he had sort of spelled out how it sort of seemed like things were happening almost on a whim. And he was like, I'm just, I'm writing this to disabuse you of the notion that there may have been extensive planning involved in the outset of this. Uh, We will get to how this intensified program, even though it still seemed a little haphazard, how it successfully eradicated smallpox after another quick sponsor break. When the World Health Organization established the Intensified Smallpox Eradication Program, smallpox was still endemic in multiple countries in Asia, South America, and Sub-Saharan Africa. And especially at first, a lot of the financial support and a lot of the vaccines for the program were coming from wealthier nations where smallpox had already been eradicated, nations like the United States. And for these countries, their motive was not just humanitarian. There was also a lot of money and politics involved. 
For example, if smallpox was eradicated worldwide, these nations would not need to fund vaccination programs in other countries or spend money vaccinating their own populations anymore. For wealthier countries, these smallpox vaccination programs also served as opportunities to vaccinate people for other diseases and to try to build political influence and goodwill in the places where the programs were operating. Also, countries where smallpox had been eradicated still occasionally faced outbreaks that were usually introduced through travel. Although these tended to be very small and quickly contained, they were still disruptive and expensive and sometimes sparked a public panic. Global smallpox eradication would mean not having to deal with any of that anymore. Yeah, there was a lot of self-interest involved in the wealthier nations who gave money and vaccine and other support to this whole program. Although each nation still needed a plan that was customized to its own needs, there also needed to be a better unifying strategy behind this whole program, something beyond a target of vaccinating 80% of the population. That number, I feel like, keeps getting repeated today as like the standard for what is needed, but it had not really been based on epidemiology or on public health data. It had just seemed like a reasonable operational goal for the voluntary program. And it had also become clear that the number of vaccines administered did not really work as the goal, since teams might wind up vaccinating the same people more than once driving up their vaccination numbers without actually vaccinating more of the population. One big gap that needed to be filled with this was surveillance. Reporting methods were still all over the place, and eradication was only possible if health officials actually knew when and where outbreaks were happening. This was something that just required a ton of communication from the World Health Organization and all through every level of a nation's governments, all the way down to individual doctors, hospitals, and community leaders who needed to report any suspected cases in order for this to work. Another gap was standards for the vaccine itself. The Soviet Union and the United States were the two biggest donors of vaccines, with the USSR donating 140 million doses a year and the United States donating 40 million doses. Other countries donated as well, but in smaller amounts. In 1967, the World Health Organization asked vaccine manufacturers to submit samples of their smallpox vaccine, and only 30% of them met WHO standards for quality and potency. Some of the submitted vaccine samples did not contain any vaccinia virus at all. Others were contaminated with bacteria. This led to the WHO establishing more stringent standards for the vaccines and then monitoring them to make sure the vaccines actually met those standards. As all of this was happening, of course, wars and other unrest were making vaccination programs difficult in some places where smallpox was still circulating. The Nigerian Civil War began in 1967, which made things more dangerous for health workers and their patients, and it also led to a vaccine shortage. But this shortage also led to a shift in how smallpox vaccinations were prioritized. Since there wasn't enough vaccine available for the whole population, health officials focused on vaccinating family members and other close contacts of anyone who developed smallpox. This turned out to be an effective way to stop the spread of the disease, and Nigeria's last smallpox case was reported in May of 1970. 
The focus on monitoring and reporting cases that was so necessary for the program's success also made it easier to see trends in how and where smallpox outbreaks developed. Vaccinators started taking better advantage of seasonal variations. They would use all that surveillance work to trace people's contacts and to vaccinate more people at the start of the season when the smallpox case numbers were lower to contain those outbreaks before they spread. By 1973, smallpox existed in only five countries. Bangladesh, India, Nepal, Pakistan, and Ethiopia. Bangladesh had previously been free of the disease, but it had been reintroduced there as refugees fled the Indo-Pakistani War. And by this point, about 80% of the vaccines being used for this effort were being made in the countries where they were being administered. And at least 95% of the vaccines that the World Health Organization tested met its standards. Having only five countries remaining was obviously a huge accomplishment. But at the same time, more than 700 million people lived in Bangladesh, India, Pakistan, and Nepal. They were all neighboring countries, and it had become really obvious that a mass vaccination program just wasn't going to be able to eradicate the disease in this region. These neighboring nations had been trying to vaccinate their whole populations for years, There were 120,000 health staff working on the program in India alone. So the strategy shifted to mirror what had actually worked in Nigeria in the late 1960s. Health officials quarantined anyone who contracted smallpox and used extensive contact tracing to determine who else might have been exposed. They vaccinated their immediate families and the surrounding communities. This became known as the ring method, basically making a ring of vaccinated people around each active smallpox case so that the disease just could not spread. Monitoring and surveillance were critically important to this process since health workers could only make a vaccinated ring around cases of smallpox that they knew about. So health workers traveled from place to place, educating local doctors, healers, leaders, and officials about smallpox reporting and seeking out and isolating active smallpox cases and then vaccinating anyone who may have come into contact with these patients. Using this method, Pakistan saw its last reported case of smallpox in October of 1974, Nepal in April of 1975, India in May of 1975, and Bangladesh in October of 1975. Unfortunately, although Ethiopia's last case of smallpox was reported in August of 1976, by that point it had been reintroduced into neighboring Somalia, which was still experiencing active cases. In 1977, Donald Henderson resigned as the head of the Intensified Eradication Program. He was replaced by Asao Arita, who had been medical officer of infectious disease control in the Ministry of Health and Welfare in Japan before joining the World Health Organization. That same year, 1977, authorities started trying to contain an outbreak of variola minor among nomadic peoples in the desert region that spans parts of Ethiopia, Somalia, and Kenya. Smallpox was reintroduced into Kenya, but that introduction was quickly contained. And Kenya reported its last case in February of 1977. In July of 1977, Somalia and Ethiopia went to war over control of part of this region, and then that hampered efforts to control this ongoing outbreak in Somalia. 
Somalia actually reported 300 cases of smallpox in 1977. The last one was the case of Ali Ma'o Malin, who was a cook at Merca Hospital. On October 12, 1977, a driver carrying two smallpox patients to an isolation camp stopped at the hospital to ask for directions. Malin got into the car and rode with them for 15 minutes or less. He did that so he could guide them to where the leader of the smallpox surveillance team lived. These two patients were siblings, six and one and a half years old, and when authorities traced their contacts, Malin was overlooked. Although Malin worked in a hospital, he wasn't vaccinated against smallpox. In an interview later in his life, he said that he had been afraid of the vaccine. There are a couple of accounts that said that he had been vaccinated, but his vaccine hadn't taken, and that disagrees with the interview that he gave later. He started feeling sick on October 22, 1977, and at first doctors thought he had malaria. Then he developed a rash on October 26th, and he was initially diagnosed with chickenpox. He started to worry that he had smallpox on October 29th, and on October 30th, somebody reported to health officials that he had a potential smallpox case. His diagnosis was confirmed through lab tests that day. The effort to prevent Malin's smallpox case from sparking another outbreak really demonstrates what was involved in all of this. Contact tracing identified 161 possible exposures, some of them as far as 120 kilometers away. This included hospital staff, family, and friends, many of whom had visited him while he was ill. Authorities identified 33 face-to-face contacts who had no evidence of prior smallpox infection and had not been vaccinated within the past three years. And 12 of those had no prior evidence of a smallpox infection or vaccine at all. All those people were vaccinated, along with all known and possible contacts and their families. During an 18-day surveillance period, health workers made multiple in-person visits to each person who had potentially been exposed. The number and frequency of those visits depended on the person's relative level of exposure and their risk. So if they had been around him a long time and were not vaccinated, they got multiple different visits from from the health staff. But if they had been vaccinated and it was a shorter time, they might get two check-ins. In the end, though, none of those 161 contacts developed smallpox. But it did not stop with those 161 contacts. Warning signs were posted at Merca Hospital, which was placed under 24-hour guard. Vaccines were administered to everyone who worked at the hospital and all of the patients. Patients in the surgical ward were quarantined until November 13th, and in the medical ward, they were quarantined until November 17th. The hospital also suspended all non-emergency care, referred outpatient procedures to other facilities, and required daily temperature checks for patients and staff. There was also a mass vaccination campaign in the ward of the city where Malin lived and the hospital was. This was a multi-phase process with vaccinators going house to house to vaccinate everyone and to look for any signs of smallpox cases and then returning to vaccinate anybody who had arrived since the last pass or whose first vaccines showed no evidence of a vaccine scar. Once that ward of the city was done, health workers did the same for the rest of the city. Checkpoints were established at all the roads and footpaths leading into Merca, and anyone who was coming or going was advised of this possible outbreak. They vaccinated everybody who was passing through, 
And then on top of all of that, there was a massive public information campaign with a reward for reporting smallpox cases. In the end, Ali Ma'omalin was the last person to contract naturally occurring smallpox. That was 10 years, 9 months, and 26 days after the start of the intensified eradication campaign. So it just barely missed that 10-year goal, even if it had been arbitrary. (laughs) (laughs) After recovering from smallpox, Malin later became part of the effort to eradicate polio, working as a vaccinator and organizing door-to-door campaigns. He would share his own story about how he had been afraid to be vaccinated for smallpox and then had ultimately become the last smallpox patient. Somalia was declared free of polio in 2007, but it reemerged there in 2013. When that happened, Malin went back to his vaccinating work. He suddenly became ill not long afterward, and he died on July 22, 2013, of what was diagnosed as malaria. But the last person to die of smallpox contracted it after Malene did. That was Janet Parker, a medical photographer who was infected on the job at England's Birmingham University Medical School in 1978. The microbiology lab was one floor below her darkroom in the office that she used to make phone calls. It is not clear exactly how she came into contact with smallpox virus from the lab. At the time... The prevailing theory was that it was through a shared air vent, but later studies suggested that that was actually unlikely. Parker had been vaccinated for smallpox, but as we mentioned earlier, the vaccine's protection was expected to last for about 10 years, and she had been vaccinated back in 1966. The strain she was exposed to was also a particularly deadly one. Her mother, Hilda Whitcomb, contracted smallpox while caring for her, but she recovered. But Janet's father, Frederick, died of an apparent heart attack while in quarantine. Hilda missed both his and Janet's funerals because of her own illness. Health workers quarantined hundreds of people who had possibly been exposed, and at least 500 people were vaccinated to keep this outbreak from spreading any further. This lab had been scheduled to close as the World Health Organization tried to reduce the number of facilities that had samples of the virus. Although the lab had previously been inspected and was allowed to continue operation, it didn't have a lot of basic safety measures in place to contain deadly pathogens. Things like changing facilities, dedicated showers, and airlocks. It also had been the source of another smallpox case, also involving a medical photographer, back in 1966. It really seems like when they inspected the lab and they were like, it doesn't have all these things that we recommend to control potential spread of pathogens, but like only three people work here, so it's probably fine. Uh, This became a huge scandal later. The lab's director, Dr. Henry Bedson, had been trying to finish as much of his work as possible before the lab was closed. He blamed himself for Parker's illness and took his own life a few days before her death, which was on September 11, 1978. As this was happening, health officials were still closely monitoring other countries to confirm that smallpox was no longer circulating there. On October 26, 1979, a ceremony was held in Nairobi to announce that smallpox had been eradicated in the Horn of Africa. That was two years after Ali Ma'au Malin had first developed a smallpox rash. On December 9, 1979, the Global Commission for the Certification of Smallpox Eradication declared smallpox eradicated. And on May 8, 1980, the World Health Organization confirmed the disease's eradication. 
There's been some stuff floating around social media lately about how this was only possible because everyone did their part, either implying or just flat out saying that everybody accepted the vaccine during this process. But that is just not true. There was a lot of resistance and hesitancy, especially in campaigns to vaccinate children. A lot of parents just didn't want to do something that might hurt their child or make them sick. The process of administering the vaccine also evolved over the years, and some parents had had, like, pretty traumatic vaccine experiences that they didn't want repeated with their child. Anti-vaccine activists such as Lily Lote, who worked for the National Anti-Vaccination League and edited its journal, distributed literature against vaccines in general and against the smallpox vaccine specifically well into this eradication effort. Aside from that, because earlier versions of the smallpox vaccine were grown in the skin of live animals, animal rights activists and anti-vivisectionists objected to their use. When methods progressed to using tissue cultures, mistrust of science led people to object to this method as well. In places like India, smallpox vaccination had been a routine part of the public health service since 1947, and yet there were still outbreaks for decades after that. This led people to claim that the vaccine was worthless, or even that it was what had been causing the smallpox. Nations stopped vaccinating people for smallpox once the disease had been eradicated from within their borders, and in some people, this just reinforced that perception. Like, there were no vaccines happening anymore. That must be why there's no smallpox happening anymore. There were also religious objections to smallpox vaccinations. Various peoples and cultures interpreted smallpox as coming from divine will or interpreted existing methods of smallpox prevention or treatment as religiously significant. And most of the last nations to eradicate smallpox were the same ones that had a long history of being colonized and exploited by European powers. So people were understandably suspicious of this largely Western-led public health effort. So the global eradication of smallpox happened in spite of hesitancy and resistance, not in the absence of it. So that is how... Smallpox was finally eradicated. It does still exist in a couple of labs. There have been ongoing conversations about destroying those remaining stocks, and it keeps getting postponed. I would really like it if we as a global society could get control of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, because unless the Carter Center program successfully eradicates guinea worm disease in the immediate future. We don't have any more eradications of diseases to cover on the show when I need an optimistic story related to all this. Right. We're, uh, that would be a, a great to report as a history in the making, but <laughs> fingers crossed. Do you have some listener mail for us? I do have listener mail. This is from Alex. And Alex wrote after our Deportation of the Acadians episode. And Alex wrote, Hi, Tracy and Holly. How surprised I was when I opened my podcast player yesterday and found finally an episode on the Acadian deportation. I immediately broke my rule of listening episodes in order as I was a few episodes behind. I am a longtime listener and have suggested myself an episode on the subject a few years back. I do not know if it was on purpose or a lucky coincidence, but the release of the episode coincides with National Acadian Day, which is August 15th. 
On this day, Acadians from communities in the Maritime provinces in Quebec celebrate Acadian culture. This event is usually marked by a tent mar where people walk in the street at around 6 p.m. and start making noise by banging on pots and pans in a way to remind the rest of the world of our ongoing presence and resilience. Today, New Brunswick is about 40% francophone, mostly of Acadian heritage. New Brunswick is still the only officially bilingual province in Canada. Both English and French-speaking communities coexist harmoniously, although some friction occasionally flares up with some in the political arena blaming the bilingual status of the province as a reason to explain the economic problems of the province. Outside the Maritimes, Quebec is probably the region with the most Acadian descent, with, as researchers proved over the year, over a million of the seven million inhabitants are of Acadian descent. In the United States, many Acadians would assimilate into American culture, with most of them anglicizing their name. For example, some LeBlancs became whites and so on. Uh, Alex ends with a personal note uh, about family genealogy and uh, and Acadian descent. So thank you so much, Alex. A couple of people wrote in about two things. One, um, about New Brunswick being the only officially bilingual Canadian province. And a couple of people wrote in about August 15th being National Acadian Day. Uh, That was 100% coincidental. Not even coincidental, it like there it was accidental this episode was originally going to come out a little bit later but we had a very very last minute schedule switcheroo uh, which is the only reason the acadian episode actually came out before august 15th instead of afterwards so happy coincidences happen in our calendar sometimes and that was one of them so thanks so much alex for sending this email if you would like to email us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at iHeartRadio.com. We're all over social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app and anywhere else you like to get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.